Good morning, I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. It's good to have you with us here today on a uh, dark and cloudy Saturday, August 13th, 2022. Today we'll be looking at the Old Testament and Epistle reading for tomorrow, um, at least the two of the options. Tomorrow being uh, Trinity, what? Trinity 9, is that right, or Trinity 8? Ah, my memory's no good. I know what the text is for tomorrow. <laughs> uh, tomorrow is Trinity 9, and also tomorrow is the uh, commissioning of uh, Mrs. Polster as um, our 5th or 8th grade homeroom teacher, and, and you know, um, what do they call it, departmental teacher uh, for this coming uh, school year. So, exciting. Yeah, pretty in Indiana. Well, not pretty here. Sorry. Uh, let's see, anything else before we begin? I don't think so. So let's start. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right. Uh, one more thing here. Uh, apparently it's not working. What I was going to do... Do that, do that, do that, do that. Okay. Good. Our memory verse No one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. Let's say it again. No one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12. Verse 3. Our psalm is Psalm 119, its conclusion. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your just and righteous decrees. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope in your salvation, O Lord. And I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies, for all my ways are before you. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your just decrees help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Uh, before we move on, we've been doing the same psalm for, uh, what, 12 weeks or so, and uh, I, used, I used to like to read a uh, meditation on the psalm after we completed it, but since this one's been going on for ever, um, I haven't gotten to do that, but we'll do it now. 
This is, again, from uh, Patrick Henry Reardon, if you remember, his book, Christ in the Psalms. All right. The longest of the Psalms, of course, is Psalm 118, Hebrew 119, constructed of 22 stanzas of eight lines each. While there are several other songs that are called alphabetical, in a sense that each verse or pair of verses begins with the next sequential letter in the Hebrew alphabet, Psalm 118 is alphabetical in a more extreme way. In this instance, every verse in each stanza begins with the same letter of the alphabet. Thus, in the first stanza, each of the eight verses commences with the first Hebrew letter, Aleph. Or Aleph. Each line of the second stanza begins with Beit, and so on, through all 22 letters of the alphabet. All right, so you can't even see it here uh, in English, but uh, every line of this eight verses here, the last eight verses, begin with a Tau. All right? um, and then every eight verses here, 161 to 168, begin with a Sin or Sheen, which is uh, the same letter, just slightly different. Noting. All right. Um, then he goes on, this rather artificial arrangement may not be in every instance the most inspired or inspiring device of poetic construction, but it certainly does challenge the skills of the poet. For example, the seventh letter of the alphabet is Vav, but strictly speaking, no word in Hebrew actually begins with the letter Vav. So what to do? Well, in fact, there is a way of making a Hebrew word begin with Vav, that is, by adding Vav as a prefix, meaning roughly and. This is exactly what the psalmist did. In the Hebrew text, every line of the seventh stanza commences with and. The older translations used by the church followed suit. Each line in the Greek text begins with chi, and each Latin line begins with eight, et. English translations on the whole, however, tend to ignore it. All right, so there you go. If the artificiality of this alphabetic arrangement is not the stuff of powerful poetic impulse, it does serve nonetheless an important theological purpose. Psalm 118 is concerned entirely with the law of God, the Torah, and its structural use of the alphabet serves here the purpose of asserting that the law of God is the inner core and essential substance of human language. I should say that again, because this is profound. Psalm 118 is concerned entirely with the law of God, the Torah, and its structural use of the alphabet serves here the purpose of asserting that the law of God is the inner core and essential substance of human language. This is a very deep reflection. Language is the gift of God. Its primary function in the Bible, see Genesis 2.19, for example, is the formation of thought in accord with reality. And the world's deepest created reality, according to the rabbis, is the Torah, the eternal law of God, on which the inner being of all created reality is based. Right? So we don't play language games. Language is not a tool for us to use to play games. Language actually constitutes reality. That's what, from the beginning, God spoke and the world came into being, right? The eternal law of God, the Torah, reflects in turn the very being of God. And the final purpose of language is to lead man's thought to the knowledge of God. That's the reason we speak, is to learn of God. That's what he's saying. Language and Torah, thus, are inseparable. In Psalm 118, law and word tend to be used interchangeably. The Christian will, of course, want to assert something further. The Christian will insist that the eternal law is really derived from God's eternal thought, and that God's eternal thought is his word, the same word that for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven. The Torah, that is to say, speaks of Christ. The law of God points to Christ and is fulfilled in Christ. 
The final purpose of language is that men may know Christ. He is, after all, the Word, the very Word that was in the beginning. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of language. See Revelation 118, 21.6, 22.13, both human and divine language. Christ, as the Latin fathers called him, is the uh, verbum abbreviatum, God's word abbreviated, in a sense that all that God has to say is summed up in Christ. Christ is likewise the goal of man's own language, because the purpose of human language is that men may know the truth. And Christ is the truth, the very truth that makes true all things that are true. This is all just quoting uh, the Gospels and the Epistles. All through this psalm, then, Psalm 118 or 119 in Hebrew, English, the law of God is described as the path to the knowledge of the truth. It is the law of God that is a lamp unto my feet and that gives light to my eyes, my meditation all the day, sweeter than honey to my mouth and better unto me than thousands of gold and silver. There are several possible ways of praying this psalm. For example, one might pray it as the prayer of Jesus to his Father, filled with the resolve to do all things um, in all things the Father's will, the faithful servant of God, obedient unto death, in the psalm Jesus appears as the model and author of our own faith. Or one may pray Psalm 118 as a psalm about Jesus himself. Each one of the psalm's testimonials to the law, the precepts, the commandments, etc., referring to him of whom the law itself prophesies, and in whom it is fulfilled. Thus every line speaks of Jesus. Almost every line also, if one looked closely, is structured on a I-U polarity. I keep your precepts, you hold me up, teach me your statutes, you have taught me, and so on. The entire psalm thus becomes a sustained I-U prayer, verse by verse. I-U, I-U, me, you, you, me, teach me, your, etc. Yeah, I think that's actually quite profound on the nature of language. Um, This is why Christians are not postmodernists and thinking that all language is fungible. And that meanings can, and, and words can be rewritten. Uh, to, to, so we can redefine, for example, uh, male and female, you know, man and wo- man and woman, or uh, husband and wife. Right? I watched a movie last night which sought to do the same sort of thing, and it was just, um, it's such. Well, it's almost repulsive to the Christian because we look at it and say you're denying the fundamental reality that God brought into being by His Word, and now you're using the words. Um, that we have used to describe that reality or that God gave us to describe that reality in um, in a way that's contrary to what God has set up. And so uh, it's demonic, it's uh, antichrist uh, to misuse language. Yeah, uh, I would suggest, if you like, <laughs> like what you read, um, pray the Psalms and read alongside um, Patrick Reardon's book. Um, never, never stops uh, being profound to me. Uh, all right. So we'll move on to Psalm 120 next week. Finally, right? Our Old Testament tomorrow uh, begins actually with our memory verse from, I think, last week or the week before. All right. Second so, uh, Samuel 22. This is David. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With a blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, you show yourself pure. And with the devious, you show yourself shrewd. You will save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty, that you may bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness, for by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven, and he is a shield to all who trust in him. For who is God except the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? God is my strength and power, and he makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of the deer, 
and sets me on my high places. All right. Well, there it's raining again. Um, so the position of humility is the position of the Christian. Um, but what, what in particular, I think this reason, reason this text was chosen for our Old Testament is uh, that one line, uh, the second half of 27, and with the devious, you show yourself shrewd. Tomorrow is um, the parable of the unjust manager or the shrewd manager, right? And so um, the connection is with the words of David and then with Jesus' own psalm, uh, that God deals with us um, as we want him to deal with us, <laughs> as we approach him, so he deals with us. If we deal with him as a, a devious God who um, hides from us, then he will hide himself from us, right? If we think of him as a God who demands of us uh, much, then he will make great demands, right? Uh, if we approach him as one who gives um, to those who don't deserve it, then he is merciful and gracious to those who don't deserve it, right? Um, God deals with us as we think of him. This is why it's very important that we hear from him um, who he is so that we don't approach him um, in a way that brings us hurt and harm, right? Or that we think of him as um, the gracious and merciful God um, who gave his son Jesus to die for us, right? And then he, then as uh, he approaches us, he approaches us as merciful. Uh, one of the problems, though, I, I suppose, um, I've had this experience, is that um, the mindset that we have towards God affects the way that we hear him. It's not that he actually treats us all that differently. He doesn't. Um, he treats everyone the same, in, in, in a sense. But how we understand his treatment of us varies depending on uh, what word we believe, right? So I've had experience where people will come to the same service, hear the same um, liturgy, right? Pray or sing the same hymns, pray the same prayers, um, hear the same sermon preached, and will have radically, um, almost like complete opposite um, hearing and understanding. Uh, one will hear it as a wonderful Sunday full of gospel comfort, forgiveness of sins, and another will hear it as a strict word of judgment and harsh and a harsh God who's angry with them. And the same words were spoken with the same inflection, <laughs> same facial expressions, all right? Uh, it has to do with, again, how we approach God, not so much exactly how we, um, he deals with us. He deals with us all the same through law and gospel. Um, but our understanding of that is going to vary depending on, upon our own posture. Um, I think this is incredible, uh, actually, to think about in terms of um, how we think of what God, how God is. We think of him as a shrewd God, right, who um, you know is clever and devious. Um, and so then he seems to us to be that way, right? Uh, but if we don't, if we think of him differently, it'll be otherwise. This is exactly what uh, the Lord's Prayer does in regards to uh, reframing our understanding of God. Uh, this is why we pray the prayer daily as the Lord has instructed us, so that we think of God the way he wants us to think of him, and that we do so by asking of him the things that he's promised to give us. Right? Uh, we'll talk more about that in a minute. So 1 Corinthians 10 verses 6 through 13. Now these things became, became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, meaning Israel. And do not become idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. You think Sodom, right? Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents, the fiery serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks 
he stands, take heed lest he fall. No temptation, so here's the key, temptation, has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. All right. Um, So again, uh, we have all these examples of people who treat God um, in a particular way, and then what happens to them? Exactly what what they expect, right? So they think of God as sexually permissive, right? Allows you to do whatever you want, whatever God they believed in, and thus God um, brought judgment upon them because that's what they asked for, in effect. Um, tempting Christ, right? The, the promised Messiah. And what, the serpents are sent among them and they're destroyed, right? Or complaining. So God gives them exactly what they're complaining. God says, we, we loathe this worthless food, right? And so he said, fine, I'll take it away from you. <laughs> I'll destroy you in the process. Um, he gives us what, what we ask for. Um, especially when we treat him in a way contrary to what he's promised, right? So the way of escape is, again, in Jesus and his word. Uh, Jesus is actually the means of escape, um, to listen to Jesus, right? And he provides the means of escape. In particular here, Paul's talking about temptation. So I think it's appropriate we look um, at the large catechism on the sixth petition, lead us not into temptation, and hear uh, what Luther has to say about this, because I think it's important. Uh, We have now heard enough about what toil and labor is needed to keep all that we pray for and to persevere. This, however, is not done without weakness and stumbling. Stumbling, Although we have received forgiveness and a good conscience and are entirely acquitted, right? So think of the first five petitions of the Lord's Prayer, right? Uh, Forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, right? We just prayed for that. We must pray again that he would not allow us to fall again and yield to trials and temptation. Temptation, however, or as our Saxons in olden times used to call it, bekurunge, yeah, there we go, bekurunge, is of the three kinds, of the flesh, of the world, and of the devil. You've heard that before. For we dwell in the flesh and carry the old Adam about our neck. He exerts himself and daily encourages us daily to unchastity, laziness, gluttony, and drunkenness, greed, and deception to defraud our neighbor and to overcharge him. In short, the old Adam encourages us, encourages us to have all kinds of evil lusts, which cling to us by nature and to which we are moved by society, for example, and what we hear and see in other, of other people. They often wound and inflame even the innocent heart. Next comes the world, which offends us in word and deed. It drives us to anger and to impatience. Ah, that's helpful to think about the world's temptation. Offends us and then drives us to anger and impatience. In short, there is nothing but hatred and envy, hostility, violence, and wrong, unfaithfulness, vengeance, cursing, railing, slander, pride, and haughtiness with useless finery, honor, fame, and power. No one is willing to be the least. No humility, right? Everyone desires to sit at the head of the group and to be seen before all. That's the temptation of the world. Then comes the devil, pushing and provoking in all directions. But he especially agitates matters that concern the conscience and spiritual affairs. He leads us to despise and disregard both God's word and works. He tears away, tears us away from faith, hope, and love. And, and he brings us into misbelief, false security, and stubbornness. On the other hand... He leads us to despair, denial of God, blasphemy, and innumerable other shocking things. These are snares and nets, and indeed are real fiery darts that are shot like poison into the heart, not by flesh and blood, but by the devil. Great and grievous indeed are the dangers and temptations which every Christian must bear. All right, so think again of what we just read. Um, 
No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the means of escape. Okay? So take that in mind. We bear them even though each one were alone by himself. So every hour that we are in this vile life, we are attacked on all sides, chased and hunted down. We are moved to cry out and to pray that God would not allow us to become weary and faint and to fall again into sin, shame, and unbelief. For otherwise, it is impossible to overcome even the least temptation. This, then, is what lead us not into temptation means. It refers to times when God gives us power and strength to resist temptation. Lead us not into temptation is referring to times when God gives us power and strength to resist temptation. However, the temptation is not taken away or removed. While we live in the flesh and have the devil around us, no one can escape his temptation and lures. It can only mean that we must endure trials, indeed, and be engulfed in them. But we say this prayer so that we may not fall and be drowned in them. To feel temptation is, therefore, a far different thing from consenting or yielding to it. We must all feel it, although not in the same way. Some feel feel it in a greater degree or more severely than others. For example, the young suffer especially from the flesh. Afterward, when they reach middle life and old age, they feel it from the world. But others who are occupied with spiritual matters, that is, strong Christians, feel it from the devil. Such feeling, as long as it is against our will, and we would rather be rid of it, can harm no one. For if we did not feel it, it could not be called temptation. But we consent to it when we give it the reins, and do not resist and pray against it. Therefore, we Christians must be armed and daily expect to be constantly attacked. No one may go on in security and carelessly as though the devil were far from us. At all times we must expect and block his blows. Though I am now chaste, patient, kind, and firm in faith, the devil will this very hour send such an arrow into my heart that I can scarcely stand. For he is an enemy that never stops or becomes tired. So when our temptation stops, there always arises other others and fresh ones. So there is no help or comfort except to run here, take hold of the Lord's Prayer, and to speak to God from the heart like this. Dear Father, you have asked me to pray. Don't let me fall because of temptations. Then you will see that temptations must stop and finally confess themselves conquered. If you try to help yourself by your own thoughts and counsel, you will only make the matter worse and give the devil more space. For he has a serpent's head. If it finds an opening into which it can slip, the whole body will follow without stopping. But prayer can prevent him and drive him back. How's that, huh? So, uh, temptation... Um, is always at hand, right? And so we always pray against it, right? We call a thing what it is. We don't act as if um, the situation is differently than it is, right? We don't we don't call what is evil good. Um, we don't uh, claim that we have strength to resist, right? Or that resistance is futile. Exactly. Um, this text is also used in the uh, article on, what is this? Um, the article on, um, love and the Fulfilling of the Law, which we read here recently. It's Article 5 of the Augsburg Confession, or Article 3, depending on how you want to number things. Um, it's in the very last, or one of the very last paragraphs, I think. Yeah, it's at the very end here. Um, and so this is on the fulfilling of the law, and it has to do with temptation. Uh, let's see, where should we jump in? All right. Scripture, furthermore, has predicted that the righteousness of faith would be clouded over by human traditions and the teachings of works in this way. Paul often complains about this. They were even during um, they were even during his time 
those who, instead of the righteousness of faith, taught that people were reconciled to God and justified by their own works and own acts of worship, and not through faith for Christ's sake. Right. So this is a temptation that we can think that we can uh, overcome on our own, or that our works merit us uh, God's favor. People judge by nature that God should be appeased by works. We talked about this in uh, Catechesis on Wednesday night. That's the natural religion of all of the flesh of all men is that God must be appeased by works. It's not Christian faith, though. Nor does reason see a righteousness other than the righteousness of the law understood in the civil sense. So there have always been some who have taught this earthly righteousness alone to the exclusion of the righteousness of faith. Such teachers will always exist. The same thing happened among people of Israel. The majority of the people thought that they merited forgiveness of sins by their works. Therefore, they piled up sacrifices and acts of worship. On the contrary, the prophets in condemnation of this opinion, taught the righteousness of faith. What happened among the people of Israel are illustrations of those things that were to happen in the church, as Paul says there in 1 Corinthians 10, right? The things that happened to Israel are illustrations of the things that were to happen to the church, right? I've been pointing this out to you, uh, having read with you over the last year um, from the book of the Kings, right? First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and... Um, just every example, or judges before that, we read that, I think, last summer. Um, there's nothing that has happened that we haven't also experienced within the church today. This is the reason why um, the history of God's people is recorded for us, so that we see that there is no temptation that is not common to man, right? Uh, or to God's people. Therefore, uh, Melanchthon writes, let the multitude of the adversaries who condemn our doctrine not disturb godly minds. For the adversary spirit can easily be judged, because in some articles they have condemned truth that is so clear and apparent that their godlessness appears openly. For example, the bull of Leo X condemned a very necessary article which all Christians should hold in belief. It stated that we should trust that we have been forgiven, not because of our sorrow, but because of Christ's word, whatever you bind. All right, so because of the office of the keys, we should trust that we have been forgiven. And now in this assembly, the authors of the confutation have clearly condemned the following. Faith is a part of repentance. We obtain forgiveness and sins by faith. And by faith, we overcome the terrors of sin so that conscience is soothed. Right? They condemned all of that. Who does not see that this article, that by faith we obtain the forgiveness of sins, is most true, most certain, and especially necessary to all Christians? Who, to all posterity, hearing that such a doctrine has been condemned, will judge that the authors of it had any knowledge of Christ? Right. So by denying that we obtain by faith we obtain the forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus, uh, what have they done? They've done exactly what Israel did in the wilderness, right? They have succumbed to temptation and thinking um, of their own actions, their own deeds, or even their own institutions um, has, as uh, more important than faith in Christ. All right. Uh, the question is, our memory verse says this. Well, of course, where is our memory verse from? <laughs> First Corinthians 12, right? So just in a couple chapters after this. Okay. I think that's good for now. Um, so think about all of the, I, I want to say this in terms of temptation, but also in particular, like how we think of God. Um, that's that's going to really play out tomorrow with uh, with the gospel text for tomorrow. Um, you know, how we approach God is how, he, um, how we perceive he deals with us. How we think of him changes how we think uh, of how he deals with us, right? If we think of him as angry and vindictive, then that's exactly how we'll hear um, him speak to us, right? If we think of him as gracious and merciful as he has uh, revealed to us uh, in the scriptures, then we receive him as gracious and merciful. All right. Of course, that's all just speaking of the uh, of faith, 
uh, worked by the Holy Spirit through the Word, right? Okay, there we go. Well, let's say the uh, Catechism for the week, the Lord's Prayer, Third Petition, and uh, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does this mean? The good and gracious will of God is done um, without our prayers, but we pray in this petition that it may be done among us also. How is God's will done? God's will is done when he breaks and hinders every evil plan and purpose of the devil, the world, and our sinful nature, which do not want us to hallow God's name or let his kingdom come, and when he strengthens and keeps us firm in his word and faith until we die. This is his good and gracious will. All right, let us pray. Heavenly Father, your good and gracious will is to preserve us, or to keep and preserve us in the true faith. Your good and gracious will is done without our prayer and does not depend upon us. For this we give you thanks. Forgive us for not trusting that you promised to preserve us in Christ. Break and hinder every evil plan and purpose of the devil, the world, and our sinful nature, which do not want us to hallow your name or let your kingdom come. Strengthen and keep us firm in your word and faith until we die. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, let's pray our, our sing our hymn, The Church is One Foundation.
Let us pray. Grant to us, Lord, the spirit to think and do always such things as are right, that we who cannot do anything that is good without you may be enabled by you to live according to your will. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We pray today uh, for faithfulness to the end, for the renewal of those who are withering in the faith or have fallen away, for pastors as they prepare to administer Christ's holy gifts and for receptive hearts and minds on the Lord's day. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. We pray today in Thanksgiving with Jen, Jed, and Whitney, who all celebrate their birthday. Pray for the households of our church, especially Jim and Mardell, Dan, Clarence, and Linda, Derek, Dennis, and Pauline. We pray in Thanksgiving with Tim at the gift of healing. Pray for our catechumens, Matt and Maureen. Pray for those ill, receiving treatment, or recovering, especially Marcella, Joe, Pastor Coda. Kelsey, Dan, Brad, Taylor, Lenore, and Pat. Pray for our homebound, Bev, Willis, Ed, Mickey, Paul, and Pauline. Pray for the missions and mercy work of the church, especially the gathering place at St. Paul Falls, our mission of the month. We ask the Lord to give us a disdain of earthly things, and we ask the Lord's comfort upon the family and friends of Marcia Weinhold. For all this, let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. All right. Excellent. Good to have you with us here today for the Congregation of Prayer. Uh, we'll join. You can join us again on Monday morning. We'll uh, resume where we left off. Uh, in Luke's Gospel. the uh, Tomorrow is Sunday, of course, the Lord's Day, so we have divine service at 9.30. Again, we uh, celebrate tomorrow the uh, commissioning of Mrs. Polster, which will happen in the middle part of the service. Um, afterwards will be uh, cake and punch, I think, and uh, I'll have coffee ready, because we'll, we'll have maybe, and we'll do whatever kind of Bible study we can do afterwards. All right, and I'm trying to think what else. Oh, and then after... Uh, you know, about noon, I think, is uh, the men's ministry. So this will be our, our second time meeting. So uh, if you're male or if your uh, significant other is male, <laughs> invite them to come. 
uh, actually drag them, kicking and screaming, or however it works, right, to come and uh, enjoy that. Mike uh, puts that on, and uh, I, I found it beneficial. All right, and I think you will too. All right, I, that sounds like everything. So, Lord be with you all. Keep you safe. Enjoy the day. We'll see you tomorrow. We thank you for listening to this podcast from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church Sermon Center in Random Lake, Wisconsin. If this podcast is of benefit to you, please consider supporting the work of St. John by visiting stjohnrandomlake.org, that's stjohnrandomlake.org, slash support, and give today.